Hello and welcome to Dragon Bites, the paediatric podcast aimed at paediatric trainees or anyone interested in child health. I'm Asim, one of the paediatric trainees here in Wales and one of the presenters for Dragon Bites. This week we're going to continue our talk with Amarantha and Rosie about their interests in the field of sustainable healthcare. They were kind enough to chat to Stacey and Tom last week and we're going to pick this up from where we left off. So if you haven't heard the first half of this episode, please go back to last week's episode and have a listen in. Anyway, let's get started. So, um, I wanted to move on a little bit to why why this is important for paediatrics. So, why, why is it so... You, you did mention about... Um, uh, the school strike and things and um, what, what, why is it particularly important in paediatrics? So I think there's three main reasons. Uh, one is because this is going to determine children's health. Like this is a massive health issue. Two, because children are asking us to make changes. We are the voice of paediatricians are supposed to be the voice of children and young people uh, or our colleges. And, you know, we should be trying to to be the grown-ups in the conversation I keep looking around I still feel like I'm a child I look around wondering who's going to be dealing with this massive issue and waiting for somebody to come in and be like okay it's all right we're sorting it now and then I suddenly realize actually no I need to be part of that I need to be the people engaging in this um this conversation um and the third thing is that um it will help bring about positive health changes for them. So one, it's going to impact their health negatively if we do nothing. Two, um, they want us to make changes. And three, the changes that we make will impact their health positively now rather than in the future. Yes, yeah, one of the reasons why paediatrics is so amazing, hey? <laughs> what, do you have um, uh, any um, reasons why um, it's particularly important in paediatrics amarantha i mean from a paediatric point of view yes they're my favorite group of patients to treat because they have they make no bones about what they want of us they want something they ask for it and i think we we're not only are we responsible for caring for them in a very particular way that means yes they get their appropriate treatment now but we shouldn't be denying them great treatment in the future because of what we're doing now and like Rosie said they're very vocal about what they want and I don't disagree with them at all and it's my responsibility as a functioning adult to make sure I'm doing the best that I can for them and yeah and and treating treating those patients uh in dentistry I mean is if you if you get the prevention right they shouldn't need healthcare. it's a self-perpetuating system that has always baffled me that the the funding that we we retrieve for healthcare is 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 acting against us because it means we don't have money for preventive schemes because you, you it's really hard to measure prevention working and i think the whole system when you take a step back and look at it um it, it starts and ends with the next people we're looking after because it, otherwise what's the point and and it's a really big question a really deep question to ask and it's something i've struggled with in this position because it's really it's it's sometimes really hard talking about systemic change for for these children because we're so used to the way we do things and 
I think it's really exciting when children come up to us and ask what we're doing and ask how we can do it better because it flummoxes some of the people at the top and that's really important and that's really powerful. So if we don't listen to these people, then yeah, what is the point? Um, I'm not sure that's from a dentistry point of view, but from a pediatric point of view, when I listen to my patients, um, that's what they that's what they ask and that's what I try and answer. Yeah, I think time and time again, it's shown in, in loads of studies, isn't it, that the more that you invest in, in children and their health and their education, then it pays back for itself, you know, many times fold in, in the future going forward. Um, and that is the same for talking about their health um, and the changes we can make there. Um, are there some specific areas where paediatrics... Um, from a sustainable healthcare point of view, can can make some differences compared to other other aspects of healthcare. So, what I encourage when I teach about sustainable quality improvement is for people to look at the carbon hotspots within their services. So, each pediatrician will be acting within a different context. So, some of us are community pediatricians, some of us are neonatologists. So, um, you know, what you want to do first is try and study your system, map out where it is that you're having the, the most detrimental impact. Um, and then think about focusing your changes to that area so that you get the most effect for the least effort. That's one of my mottos of life. <laughs> but um, it would be great if, if so if I was to talk about um, acute pediatric services, I would imagine that the biggest carbon hotspot areas might be um, inhalers. And this is a particular topic um, for the National Health Service um, net zero target as well. So inhalers, for those who aren't familiar with the damaging effects of um, metered dose inhalers, these are the ones that you push down, they have a propellant inside, um, and we need those because that goes into the chamber, the spacer that we use, and then um, goes into uh, children's lungs. So they're, they're really a very effective way of getting a drug into uh, the right space. But the problem is that the, the propellants that go into the in, in gas chambers to make the drug come out, those propellants have a really high global warming potential. And um, the global warming potential is compared to a carbon dioxide equivalent. And so if I was just to say like an, a kind of one inhaler has like 28 to 40 times that of um, a like unit of carbon dioxide. Now, if I was to put that in miles traveled in a car, so like a, a kind of salbutamol acuhaler has about... Um, Atrovent, for example, would have about 250 miles of an equivalent car journey in a Ford car. So that's like quite a, um, so when you're, when you're prescribing that drug, you don't think of that environmental footprint. And that's quite a high footprint compared to something like paracetamol, which would probably only have a very few number of miles traveled in a car. So, um, it clearly is a resource that has quite a big environmental impact and we should be trying to minimise that environmental impact by using that resource with the kind of stewardship that you would expect of something really expensive. Um, so if the price of it was reflecting the environmental damage that it's doing, we would be possibly a little bit more cautious about how to use it and make sure that when we were using it, we were making sure that it was used most efficiently. 
that's not to say we shouldn't be using it. It's just saying how can we do that more effectively? Um, and it might be a chance to talk about the sort of sustainability principles at this point. Um, mm. Would that be helpful? Yeah, I think that'd be great. So any resource that you might be thinking about that has a high carbon impact, you might want to apply these principles to. So prevention um, being the first and most effective principle that you could apply. So in terms of inhalers, could you prevent an inhaler being prescribed by improving um, somebody's kind of, well, either reducing their exposure to allergens. (laughs) So is there a smoker in the house? Could you be helping them to stop? Are they living in an an inner city area and having loads of exposure to air pollution? Could they be using different routes to reduce that? Should they be making sure that there's no dust mites in there? But, you know, prevention of a respiratory illness is probably the biggest and most effective change so that you wouldn't have to prescribe the, the inhaler in the first place. And then if you're not going to prevent, could you empower patients so that they know how to use their inhalers effectively so we often find that patients don't know how to use an inhaler they're not doing it properly the parents are shaking it then doing five five sprays and they're not counting properly so always checking an inhaler technique and empowering the patients to use it effectively and also um do they know where to dispose of their inhalers so giving that them information so that they know to dispose of it in a pharmacy and not just chuck it in the bin because if they chuck it in the bin the propellant leaks out that's remaining in the in the inhaler over a longer period of time which has a higher global warming impact so yeah i can keep going would you no i I was going to say um definitely that last one the the disposal was the new one for me uh and i completely didn't understand i I had a few uh, a couple of inhalers in my drawer um which i just had had got once when i you know was getting some some wheeze with um exercise basically and then I just didn't realize that effect um over time of just it's the same as just using it completely just just by having it in yeah. your drawer so um uh, and you know and I, I several don't... in your drawer is even worse he's <laughs> <laughs> leaving all in your drawer so bring those bring them back um to a pharmacy put them in the pharmacy and they're incinerated when they're incinerated the propellant is um, disposed of more effectively it still has some global warming potential but it's much reduced so um, there was a scheme nationally run by Glasgow Smith Klein that was to do with recycling those inhalers and actually the propellant goes into refrigerators refrigerators and um, air conditioning so that propellant's really effective at trying to um, help gas exchange so it's it's a really great thing but it does there is massive amount of work to try to reduce those propellants in air conditioning units in the first place, because that is another carbon hotspot in our products because because of their damaging effect. So, suppose, um, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, I was going to say, I suppose, I suppose that's where the, the triple bottom line comes in again. Is that you know previously, I think we've all worked in places where um, a, a certain medication has changed purely due to its financial implications, and the you know pharmacy are prescribing a cheaper one. Um, whereas when you bring in the triple bottom line and other aspects and we've got this other unit of value um, then actually certain you know inhalers that have got you know half as much propellant in suddenly become more valuable um, yeah and yeah. so yeah, we can make changes like that I think that at the moment that's the the best that we can do is trying to make those changes ourselves by trying to account the triple bottom line at some point um possibly in the next 20 years i imagine there will be a carbon tax to 
to try to help us accelerate these changes so that there is a financial impact that takes into account the environmental impact that's going on. Mm. And if you put a carbon tax on inhalers, you would see quite a quick shift, mm. I imagine. So there is there is still very much because of the economy that we, we live in and the way that we value products, the, the pound sign is the one that we understand and that shifts behavior most quickly. You can see that in loads of other examples when you put the smoking... Um, the price of cigarettes up, the change was quite rapid. You put that on alcohol units, you put it on a sugar tax. You know, these changes can can take place centrally. We don't have that yet, but in in the absence of it, we could be trying to take that into account. Great. And um, what about um, us, as, us as healthcare professionals, um, individuals, what, what can we do? I know we were just talking about procurement then and uh, you know, pharmacy, but what can we do? Yeah. So so on an in very individual basis, um going back to the inhaler's example because I hadn't completely run out of uh, my exp- my spiel on it, but if you want to um shift your trust from prescribing what is called a low volume metered dose inhaler to a low volume metered dose inhaler. So the example being salbutamol to salamol, they're both MDIs. They both have the same amount of drug in that would halve the amount of hydrofluorocarbons in that particular drug. So we're talking about a low carbon alternative medication. And if we wanted to have a very quick, easy win um, in reducing carbon emissions, that's like a change that can be made centrally within your hospital pharmacy, contact your CCG, look at what they're doing to try to reduce their um, metered dose inhaler prescriptions overall, and also tell them about shifting from high to low volume inhalers there you go really easy change you don't have to give up meat tom <laughs> i'm already giving it up okay <laughs> um what was my last my last point was uh, leaner systems so um in terms of what else we can do as health professionals to try to reduce the carbon the, the kind of carbon intensity of our health system you can try to work more efficiently. So don't prescribe an inhaler if they've already got three inhalers. Don't give them another, you know, like ask them if they've got their medication with them when they come in and use that one rather than the giving a new one out every time. So um, duplicate prescriptions and prescription waste is a major inefficiency in the NHS, both from financial and from an environmental point of view. So we should be looking at trying to build leaner systems in general. And that goes also into the way that we structure our health services and care for children. And I know that there's a major push to try to to increase um, primary care capacity to deal with a lot of paediatric issues um, and therefore reducing kind of acute admissions and um, also what might be said as unnecessary attendances (laughs) to the paediatric emergency department, paediatric assessment unit. And um, there's some great initiatives that look at trying to empower and engage um, both primary care and patients to use the kind of primary care system appropriately. And that is a, a leaner efficiency, a leaner pathway and would reduce the environmental impact of paediatric care. Yeah. And uh, one of the speaking about the kind of inhalers and um, getting the basics right, I think, is do you think that's often one of the healthiest 
healthiest options. So a couple of times, if we actually were to look at the the chamber that they're using, or you know, like you're saying, their technique, we can see that the, the chamber's covered in you know, it's it's maybe not been cleaned as frequently as it should have, and it's just wasting all of that um, drug and propellant. And and when it comes to almost anything that we we do in pediatrics, when it's talking about children coming with constipation, if we actually really spend time going down to the root causes of it, whether that's, you know, having enough fluids, having a good diet and actually get it, getting into the nitty gritty, um, we can we can save on, you know, pharmaceutical interventions later down the line. Um, and that's, I think, within all aspects of, of care, really. I don't know if I feel about that. Yeah. So if you go back to the idea of prevention being your overarching principle, yeah, preventing children from becoming unwell, <laughs> that's greater than, than treating them when they are unwell. So promoting healthier lifestyles within um, within our population in general is, is the biggest probable change that you can help to reduce the intensity of the, the healthcare system. You're probably wondering why I'm not doing public health. <laughs> <laughs> That's why paediatrics is so great, because we can do it all. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this, uh, I just find this, everything's just so fascinating. And we could, there's so much to talk about, isn't there? There's so many different bits that we can sort of expand on. Um, uh, but this is just one podcast. Um, and maybe maybe we could do um, uh, one in the future, perhaps if you, <laughs> if this one is okay. Um uh, to sort of yeah look at something uh, in you know one one aspect in a little bit more detail um but I was wondering you know we've got we've we've come up with quite a few resources during the um podcast but were there were there any other you know I'm sure hopefully this has um uh instilled some kind of enthusiasm amongst uh, our listeners uh was there anything any more resources that you had that you know we could point people to um if they wanted to find out more there are so many resources. <laughs> There's just <laughs> within this sector at the moment. I think people are finally really waking up to just how important an issue this is. So, um, of course, I can plug our own one, which is um, the Centre for Sustainable Healthcare website. We also have a particular website on doing QI projects in sustainability, um, and that's the susqi.org, susqi.org. There's also the Greener NHS website, which is got the plan for how the NHS in England hopes to re reduce itself to net zero. There's the Royal College of Pediatrics are just about to um, release their plan for how they're going to support pediatricians and um, college members to become more sustainable in their practice as well as what they can do for advocating for more reductions. And there's also a huge host of resources about talking about climate change. So that is a difficult conversation to bring up in your practice. So if you, as a pediatrician, if you're listening to this and you want to take away and maybe take this to your grand round or maybe take this to your kind of departmental meeting, think about what you can do to become more sustainable, then maybe starting off by looking at some of the climate outreach resources on how to talk about this issue would be really helpful. So there you go. And Amarantha, any whale-specific things? Um. The first thing I'd say is not whale specific, but Cardiff has become a member of Healthcare Without Harm, which is the um, NGO who figured out the mercury issue about 25, 30 years ago. And they're the ones who started it all off. And they have gained quite a bit more traction in the past uh, sort of 10 years or so. So Healthcare Without Harm supports 
groups and organizations to become better with loads of resources it's free to be a member and they've just launched a doctors network as well um I'd also recommend looking at the Lancet countdown and what the Lancet are tracking in terms of what's happening to health and climate change. Um, and like I said, it can be really overwhelming when you're starting to look at all this stuff. Uh, the first thing I'd recommend is is if you if you want to get involved in this, is find a support network, is asking questions of your health board. What are they doing to, to address the NHS England plan, the NHS Wales decarbonisation plan? How are they addressing all the key points? And starting to ask those questions does prick up the ears of the, the high-level management and executive boards. And it's seeking out support systems like the UK Health Alliance on Climate Change, Health Declares, has your health board or organisation declared a climate emergency? And then there are groups like Choosing Wisely and Wiser Healthcare, which look at reducing overdiagnosis and overtreatment, over-servicing, inefficient pathways, the value of that treatment and diagnosis pathway. So there are plenty out there, but I definitely um, start by saying it's not everything... You yourself are not going to fix the problem. We ourselves are not individually fixing a problem. We are working together to fix these problems. And don't feel like you're alone in in your efforts because we're all working together, but being put in touch with people who are also doing it, it definitely helps. So don't feel like you are alone. Seek us out. Find us on Twitter. <laughs> Follow all the feeds that are, uh, that are supporting all these efforts and, and, and forging all these links because that's the only way we're ever going to fix this. Is by well, working thanks for providing us with uh, at least a few days worth of uh... information. <laughs> 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 well, I'd quite like to maybe finish with um, just going into something that uh, maybe a, a project or that you're particularly passionate about at the moment or you're really excited about um i know i know amarantha um we've been speaking a little bit offline about entonox so um, and about nitric oxide but maybe you could go into something that you're just really excited about within the space at the moment you can talk about entonox <laughs> Okay, okay, I can talk about antinox. Okay, great. This always feels a bit taboo, really. Um, so the, the, this drug that we've had for 200 years that ironically was discovered by a dentist um, is something that we've had and we've pretty much taken for granted. But I'm involved in a project called the Nitrous Oxide Project, um, which looks at the provision of it. It looks at how much you start off with in your in your system and how much actually reaches patients. And we're discovering that at least 80% of the entonox and nitrous oxide we're using um, is just being vented into the atmosphere as waste. We don't know, we don't actually know where it's going. And nitrous oxide is one of those key six gases mentioned back in the Paris Agreement, Rosie said at the very beginning. So we have signed up to reduce those emissions, and yet no one's counting where the where it's going. No one's accounting for it. So if you have piped nitrous oxide in your hospital, if you plug into the wall and give your patients entonox. Google the nitrous oxide project because I guarantee you'll be kind of shocked by what we're finding out and you can get involved as well. So I'm really excited about that because you can just crush a carbon footprint, huge carbon footprint. And it's just so easy by turning off a tap that you're not using well. And just remind us how, how many, crazy. what was the kind of comparison to CO2 with, with regarding to? Okay, so if... If Cardiff and Vale are wasting 80% of their entonox and nitrous oxide supplies, it's about 20,000 tonnes in the last three financial years. And each one of those tonnes requires seven fully mature trees to mitigate. So seven times 20,000 tonnes is what we need to uh, grow to mitigate the damage of just three years of waste that we didn't even use, that never even made it to patients. Wow. 
and and yeah, because Rosie mentioned earlier, you know that um, some of the in, some some of the inhalers were some like fifteen to twenty times, you know, worse than the propellants that than um, than carbon dioxide. What's the the nitric oxides kind of comparison in that? Nitrous oxide. oxide yeah. Um, what's the comparison to inhalers? Or no, are you to, have to, to a um, ton of carbon dioxide. So, for example, a uh, lady on Entonox during birth, it's about 60 kilograms for an hour's worth of Entonox. Bearing in mind, she could be in labour for about 12 hours. Um, so already in that one hour of Entonox usage, 60 kilograms of carbon dioxide equivalents, she's shot any usage of reusable nappies, <laughs> any, like any usage. But it, 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 that's the question that we're asking. And it's such a culturally sensitive issue because it's something that we've used for 200 years um, that you, you can start making these comparisons and, and as to what they're going later on. But without asking these hard questions no one will give you the easy answers so I can't give you the easy answers at the moment so Tom I think what you're touching on is something called carbon literacy and Mm. um I don't think that there's a huge amount of carbon literacy available to to us in the, the general public there's huge numbers batted around they don't really mean much to us um and I would recommend this book called how bad is a banana by Mike Berners Lee which is a great kind of introduction to carbon literacy and also, like, um, I think converting it to terms that we understand can be really helpful. Um, and then trying to find out where strategically we should make changes. So individually, we can do stuff great. But our carbon dioxide amount of per, per person in the UK, if you start making changes, you might knock off a couple of tons. Like, I probably live about a five to eight ton lifestyle depending if I fly or not um but I could do better (laughs) but at what point do I stop saying like okay I'm gonna take all this self guilt and try and be a vegan who doesn't go anywhere apart from on my bike and you know eats only local food but actually I could make a far greater impact on carbon emissions if I change systematic things and I, I influence at a higher level so um it's not about guilt it shouldn't be all about guilty guilting people into change it should be about empowering people to see the positives wow i think uh yeah that's a lovely sort of thing to end on really so yeah empowering and that's that's lovely for me as i'm kind of starting on this journey <laughs> yeah. i mean so many people feel guilty they don't even have children you know, they don't, they won't have kids because they're like, oh my gosh, what is the future going to hold for them? And I can understand this kind of dilemma, but, but actually we should be taking that feeling and make that outrage into optimism. Come and and make a better future. Do it because we can. We know that climate change is bad for health. There's things that we can do now as health professionals to promote healthier lifestyles, which will reduce carbon emissions and have a positive impact on our health system overall. Mm. And I suppose what I'm getting from you guys as well is that uh, Amarantha mentioned earlier, it's not about it's not just about um, being an activist and being an eco warrior. If we're in the business, which we are of providing healthcare, and especially to children who are going to be, you know, there for the future, then we need to make sure we're doing the best to make sure that 
then no, we're 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 doing they have a future uh, for the future. <laughs> and so I know. Yeah, it's 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 actually in our job description um, yeah. as doctors and, and healthcare practice. Yeah, so yeah. I'm getting. It's overwhelming sometimes, you know. I sometimes I'm in a NICU and I'm looking around and I'm thinking, gosh, you know, we're doing an incredible thing at at, at giving these children the best options for a life, but actually, at what cost? And should we really be using the resources that we are so inefficiently? I'm not saying we shouldn't be doing this. I clearly believe that child health is so important and that we should be promoting it, but we should be careful about how to do it in the most responsible way possible. And I just wanted to say thank you once again to Amarantha and Rosie for taking time out of their busy schedules to come and talk to us about sustainable health care. I've certainly learned a lot listening to this podcast and I hope this has been of a lot of use to many of our listeners also. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening to Dragon Bites.